This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg We're at chapter 6, page 99 the first chapter, the Rebbe says that every Jew has two souls. We have two centers of uh, energies inside of us, two centers of operation. And one is divine and godly, the godly soul. That's the Jewish soul. And one is what he calls the soul, the animating soul, which is a soul from the klipa, which is the shell. And everything in this world is a balance. There's a positive and there's a negative. Everything in this world has an equal, equal balance. And just like the godly soul has its core, its essence, which is godly, piece of the divine essence, by its very being, its very being is godly, before you even do anything. The moment you're born, you're born with a holy, with a godly soul. Just being Jewish. is you're born, your very being, your very essence is holy and godly. So too, you have a soul that is very being and its very essence is the opposite of godliness. Because being itself is already a, a problem. How could there be any being? There was no other reality but God. So being itself is what the Kabbalists call the klipa, the shell. The shell that covers up on the, on the inner. The inner is the fruit. The fruit, that's the substance. Godliness, that's the substance. The shell is a cover-up, a concealment. It conceals and hides what's going on inside. It's like split off, disconnected. And within the shell itself, you have two different types of shells. You have a shell that's transparent. You have a shell that's opaque. You have a shell that's see-through, the grape. And then you have like a nut, which is totally opaque, total concealment. Swallows up. Whatever is inside it is totally swallowed up doesn't even hint that there's anything inside it. So that's its very being. It's very being, it's very essence. The fact that there's a, there is a being, and there's an I, that alone is already a clipper, concealment, cover. Then, Altarebi went on to explain the ten faculties and powers of the soul, of the divine soul, its intellect. How its entire intellect is devoted to understanding and comprehending and appreciating godliness. 
become aware of godliness. And then you have the emotions, the divine emotions, the powers and the faculties of the soul to become sensitized and to develop a passion and a yearning to godliness. And then you have the expressions of the soul. The expressions of the soul through which the soul reveals itself. It's just like a person expresses himself in his clothes, reveals himself through his clothes, gets dressed in his clothes, and, and reveals himself through his clothes. So too, the clothes of the soul, which activate all the powers and the faculties of the soul, which are the clothes of the soul, the thought of Torah, the speech, the speaking of Torah and prayer, and, and kind words and, kind, and good words, and the action, the mitzvah, the deeds, the good deeds. All of these activate the different powers and faculties of the soul. When you think words of Torah, you're activating your mind, the ability of the soul to comprehend, to comprehend godliness. When you do a mitzvah, you're activating your emotions, your heart, your soul, sensitivity. You're expressing your love of God and your sense of awe of God. So now he's going to begin explaining and the makeup of the opposite soul, the divine soul, whose very being and essence is divine and godly, the Jewish soul, the godly soul. And we have its counterforce, as a counterbalance, we have the opposite soul, which is the animal soul, the, the, the soul that animates us. And that soul is the impure soul. It's the soul that comes from klipa, that distorts reality. And just like you have the godly soul as its core and its essence is holy, and then it has ten faculties and powers which makes up the personality and the character of the soul, the flavor of the soul. And then it has its expressions, how it manifests itself. So too, the animal soul or the, the, uh, the vital soul also has its ten faculties of expression, which make up the personality and the character of the animal soul. And then it has the expressions, how it manifests itself, the thought, speech, and action of the animal soul. And uh, this is a general rule in life that everything that God created every positive has a negative and every negative has a positive God created the world on an equal scale everything is balanced out in order to give us the greatest gift of all the gift to have freedom of choice to give us the freedom of choice God created a world everything has a divine energy that sustains it but God also created a cover-up, a covering, a shell that covers up, that hides, that conceals, that splits off, that disconnects, that distorts, and gives us a different picture of reality. Instead of seeing the reality, the inner, we also have an external perspective. There's an inner perspective, but then there's also an external perspective. People go through the entire life and defining their life all by externals. How much money I possess, money, power, fame, 
indulgence, all of this is external. Of course, nothing external could possibly satisfy you, ultimately. And versus the external, you have the internal. The internal is the spiritual, is the divine. That's what nourishes you, what's wholesome. And everything in this world is an equal balance. You know, you can buy fame, but that fame is not respect. Respect is internal. People are genuinely respect for who you genuinely are. Not fame is external, ephemeral, it's superficial, skin deep. You can buy comfort, but you can't buy happiness. You can't buy love, all the money in the world. Howard Hughes was a billionaire and he died a miserable human being, suspicious of everyone. You can't buy love and you can't buy respect and you can't buy inner joy or happiness. All of these things are things that come from the inside. It's not, it's not something that's acquired external. All the money in the world can't buy it. Inner content, inner wholesomeness, well-being. It's something that comes from within. So if we know all this, why do we still make wrong choices? Ah. Because it, it's otherwise it wouldn't be an equal choice. It would be so obvious. If, if everyone saw through and perceived the ridiculousness and the emptiness and the nihilism and the total self-destruction and the dead end of externals, so who, would, who would even pay attention to it? It would be so foolish. It would be absurd, ridiculous. It is absurd. It is ridiculous. It is foolish. There's nothing there. It's like a bubble. People live their whole life like a bubble. It makes a lot of noise, takes up a lot of space, but there's nothing there. One little pop, and there's nothing there. There never was anything there. Nothing external could possibly, possibly satisfy. Maybe it's easier. It definitely is easier. It definitely is easier. And that's the difference between the godly soul and the divine soul and the animal soul. The divine soul you have to work, work for. For something inner, you have to work. It takes effort. It doesn't come free. Anyone who wants to experience wholesomeness and wants to connect on a deeper level or something internal, something genuine, it takes effort. You have to sacrifice. You have to rise above your ego. You have to forget your eye. Put your eye, place your eye on the side. Forget your ego. It takes effort. It doesn't come natural. Ego comes natural. The most natural thing in the world. To be self-centered, to be self-absorbed, to be selfish. That's the most natural thing in the world. You don't even have to go to school for it. You're born with six billion people. Cuts across all cultures. It's the most natural thing in the world. Education is to learn to rise above your ego. To rise above your narrow self-interest. To look at the bigger picture. To look that takes effort it doesn't come natural of course it is the most natural thing in the world once you experience it once you achieve it because it's genuine it's from within but to get there takes effort that's the difference between divine and godly and between ego external external is accessible it's the shell it's right there but if you chew and munch in the shell and you don't eat the inner fruit and you substitute the shell for reality the shell serves a purpose 
If it's a means to an end, it protects the fruit. There's nothing wrong with external. There's nothing wrong with materialism. There's nothing wrong with money, and there's nothing wrong with power, and there's nothing wrong with fame. If it's a shell. If it's put in the proper perspective. If it's a container, a shell, it's a means to an end. If you, if you approach it properly, then it's a very powerful tool. You can do powerful things with it, tremendous things with it. You don't substitute the shell for the reality, for the inner. But if you substitute the shell for the reality, instead of, you discard the fruit. You have no time for the fruit. You don't make any effort for the fruit. And all you do is focus and concentrate on the shell. It, it, there's nothing there. There's nothing nutritious and you just end up with a stomach ache. And it just doesn't do anything for you. And the more you indulge, the hungrier you get, the less fulfilled you are. And, the, and it only drives you crazy. It doesn't, doesn't do anything for you, internal. It doesn't satisfy anything internal. It just... It's a, it's a dead end. But of course, that's not obvious. Until it becomes too... Painful. You know, when the addict reaches a point where it just becomes too painful, then he's ready to change, ready to do the hard work necessary in order to achieve this inner spiritual, um, to achieve this inner life and inner satisfaction. So, this is the difference the two opposing forces, the ego the I, the ego, and putting the ego aside. When you put the ego aside, which takes effort, it's almost counterintuitive because ego comes so natural. And to put your ego aside takes effort, takes work. But when you put your ego aside, then you allow your soul to emerge into surface. And that feels great and feels wholesome and it feels so natural. But you have to exert that effort to accomplish it, to achieve it. But to be egotistical, that's, that's the most natural thing in the world. So God created the world in an equal balance. Every force in nature, every force, ego force, you have a divine, a godly force. Every divine, godly force, you have its opposite force. Every power of holiness, you have the opposite, impurity. Purity, impurity. Why did God create this balance? In order to give us freedom of choice. In heaven... Divinity and spirituality comes natural. But there's no choice. There's no reward. It has no value. Something that you don't exert effort, something, it's not an, it's not an accomplishment. You don't feel accomplished. Unless you paid a price, unless you sacrificed, unless you exerted yourself, it's not an accomplishment. The Zohar calls it bread of shame. Something that's handed to you on a silver platter, it's called bread of shame. Could you compare someone who earned a million dollars through his sweat, through his brawn, through his dedication, or someone who won the lottery? It may it happen to all of us. But could you compare the two? How could you compare? A person only receives satisfaction when you earn something. You worked hard and you earned it. Honestly. In heaven, it's almost a slap in the face. Everything is, everything is handed to us on a silver platter. It's obvious. Everything is transparent. You don't need faith in heaven. Everything is transparent. It's only in this world, which is dark, and it's concealed, and there's a cover-up. And a person has to have the wisdom 
and has to have the strength, the inner strength, and the, the, the determination to overcome, to struggle. To That's why it's so precious. When there's a struggle, and it's difficult, and that's why, that's why it's personal. It's only in this world that we really get personal. In heaven, the souls and the angels are almost programmed. You don't have to, you don't have to get personal. In this world, you have to make a choice. You're doing good, not because you, you, you can't do the opposite. You could do the opposite very easily, probably easier. And yet you're choosing to do good. That's a personal choice. For that, you have to tap into your conscience. It's, very, it's a very personal decision. You're not programmed. You're going against your nature. It's difficult. You're pushing yourself. It's easier just to succumb to the lowest common denominator. It's easier just to succumb to the forces of nature, the force of gravity, and just act materialistic and egotistical and external skin surface, superficial. It's difficult to rise above your nature. It's a struggle. So why are you doing it? That's your choice. You're exercising your freedom of choice. It's only in this world that we have the opportunity to really make a personal choice. So everything that we do in this world really taps into a very deep place. We're not programmed. We, we, there is a deep eye that's deep down. It's really personal. It's a conscience, a spark of the divine, creating the image of God. And that gives us that ability to rise above our egos, rise above circumstances, rise above external pressures or internal pressures. Rise above our limitation and do the right thing. Tap into that very deep place. So it's only in this world that we really come face to face with the essence of God. Because at the end of the day, everything boils down to all there is is God. God created the whole bureaucracy, the whole universe with rules and laws and bureaucracy, but Really, there's no other reality but God. Where do you come face to face with God? When your person, real person, inner person, comes face to face with the essence of God, only in this world, when you exercise your freedom of choice, and you make a personal decision, and you make a personal choice. And you're only doing it because ultimately because God asked you to do it. Why would a person choose sacrifice over indulgence? Why would a person choose to do the right thing when it's so much easier and so much more pleasurable, at least initially, appears to be, to succumb to temptation? Where, where does a person get the strength to do the right thing? It's only because we have a divine spark inside of us. We have a conscience. And we're only doing, ultimately, we're doing it for God. So what it boils down to at the end of the day is all there is is God and you. And that's that's, that's the arena of, freedom of this world, of freedom of choice. This is the arena you have freedom of choice. The soul comes into this world just to have that opportunity to exercise that freedom of choice, to be able to touch God, connect with God in the deepest, most intimate, most personal way. So it's only in this world we have a balance. Every positive has a negative, every negative has a positive. And that's how God created the world. Um... As the Talmudic rabbis say, the era of prophecy came to an end. Why did the era of prophecy came to an end? Because the rabbis prayed that the, um, the evil inclination for idolatry should, should come to an end. They slayed the evil inclination for idolatry. When that died out, 
that spiritual urge to worship idols, when that died out, concurrently at the same time, prophecy came to an end. Because you can't have one without the other. To have this powerful urge for idolatry, which we can't even relate to today, makes no sense to us. People had this urge to bow down to stones and to, to worship idols. Today we substituted for other idols. Right, so that's what I'm saying. Like <laughs> right, we have money, we have other right. idols. As Alter Rebbe said, they substituted the, the urging. Well, that's what we have. We have we have Hasidic <laughs> We have the revelation of Hasidus, but we have other idols. As Alter Rebbe says, the author of the Tanya, he says the rabbi slayed the idol for the evil inclination of idolatry, and they substituted for money. He says, and I don't know if they did it wisely, because you see the urge of people worship money. They'll destroy their families, they'll destroy their businesses, destroy their partnerships, destroy everything. Just for the sake of money. You know. And his life. Everything. So, but nevertheless, when they, when they slayed that evil inclination, that was the end of the error perhaps. Because you can't have one without the other. Every positive has to have a negative. Every negative has to have a positive. And uh, that's why God created the world. Everything in this world is a balance. Till Mashiach comes, when everything will be good, will be all good, there is, all, there is this balance. So since we have this godly soul, this divine soul, that's by its very being is divine and godly. So we have the opposite, the soul that by its very being is the opposite of godliness. The fact that there is a being, there is an I, separate and outside from God, independent of God, it's already a distortion, it's already a lie, it's already impure, it's already disconnected and split off. And then you have the faculties of the soul. The ten faculties of the soul, parallel, just like we have ten faculties of holiness, we have ten faculties, negative faculties. The way the soul expresses itself, the intellect, the human intellect, the emotions. And then you have the expressions of the soul, thought, speech, and action. The soul activates its power centers and its faculties by thinking and speaking and acting um, as we go about our daily life. So let's learn inside, page 99. The Almighty has created one thing opposite the other. Everything in the realm of holiness has its counterpart in Kuipa. In our context, the animal soul with its faculties and garments is the counterpart in Kleba of the divine soul with its faculties and garments. Just as the divine soul consists of ten holy faculties which correspond to the ten supernal seferah and is clothed in three holy garments, the thought, speech, and action of Torah and the Mitzvah, so too the soul of Sitra Akra, defined further in this chapter, derived from Kleba Noga, which is clothed in man's blood, as explained in chapter 1. The animal soul is clothed in the blood, and thereby animates the body. This soul, too, consists of ten crowns of impurity, faculties of Klippa called crowns in Kabbalistic terminology. One of the reasons they're called crowns of impurity is because one of the characteristics of holiness is that holiness is unified. All the different levels of holiness um, are unified. They help each other. They include each other. They learn from each other. So they're all inclusive. That's why one attribute will borrow from another attribute. 
The attributes of holiness, you mean? Yes, the attribute of holiness unified. are unified. The nature of holiness, since holiness, there's no ego. It's not about, the, there's no ego, therefore there's tremendous harmony. And for example, we find, for example, take a parent that's strict with their children. A parent that's strict with their children is like kindness borrowing the opposite attribute, which is strictness, but it's really an expression of kindness. What motivates that strictness? It's love. As King Solomon says, a parent who's not strict with his child hates his child. Not nice to his children. Couldn't care less about his children. Doesn't want to be bothered. So he just spoils them and just leave me alone. But if you really care about your child, you have to do what's good for the child. And what's good for the child is you have to teach them right from wrong. You have to be strong. You have to discipline them. You have to communicate very un, no, very clear, no uncertain terms. There's certain things are just not acceptable. You have to be their parent. You know, they have to respect you. You're not their friend. They have to respect you. They need you. Not just their buddy or their friend. You know, you have to be a parent. And that, so it, but it's the ultimate expression of love. Love is expressed. Not everyone who's nice to you is your friend. And not everyone who's tough on you is, is your enemy. When someone is tough on you, maybe it's the ultimate expression of love. Like a teacher who pushes a student because he believes in the student. He knows that the student could do a lot better. He doesn't want to accept mediocrity. So he's tough on the student and pushes the student. But that, so that's the, the idea of borrowing, where kindness borrows the technique of strength, of, of strictness, but it's really, it's really an act of love. So you have that flexibility where each attribute borrows from the other and includes the other, it's all-inclusive. The nature and characteristic of Kalipa, of Shell, is ego, I where everyone is a kingdom for himself. Every attribute is a kingdom for himself. When there's love, it's without any limit. Love. There's no room for anything but love. You can smother the person in love. You can, you can kill the person with love. But it's just love. There's no room for anything else. When there's strictness, it's also, there's no flexibility. The nature of holiness is flexible. When there's, when there's not e- when the ego is not there's no ego involved there's flexibility I can learn from you I can incorporate you there's a flexibility but when a person is egotistical a person is rigid and it becomes like a crown a kingdom for itself there's no communication absolute love total love why? because it's not about you it's about me when love is an expression of me the parent who truly loves the child selflessly it's not about me it's about you it's about you I'll do what's good for you what's painful for me it's more painful to discipline the child it's more painful for the parent than it is for the child that's the ultimate act of love to do something that's going to inconvenience me and sacrifice myself but I know it's for your own good that's the ultimate expression of love because it's not about ego it's not about me but when love is self-expression I love myself and I love my family because it's an expression of myself it's something I can, I can aggrandize about. It's something I can show off. It's, it's about me. It's not about them or about anyone else. So therefore, there's no room for anything but love. And therefore, you'll spoil your children. You'll, you'll, it's not about... So that's the nature of klipa. Where there's ego, each one is a kingdom apart. Every attribute is a kingdom apart. There's no flexibility. There's no compounding... There's no inclusiveness or learning one from the other. That's why he calls them crowns 
of impurity. Another reason he calls them crowns of impurity is because everything in this world is sustained by the divine energy. So everything really at its essence is really has a godly spark. Otherwise it cannot exist. The difference between holiness and purity and impurity is that holiness is transparent. When you can sense the godliness, you can sense the divine spark, that is holiness. When you cannot sense the divine spark, when it's hidden and concealed, then the divine spark is abstract, like a crown. It's above you. It's not part of you. It doesn't affect you. It doesn't impact you. It sits over your head. But it doesn't impact you. It's not part of you. In holiness, the divine spark is internalized. It becomes part of you. It's integrated. While in the opposite of holiness, the divine spark is abstract. It's above you. It has no impact on you. To use the simple analogy, if you ask everyone, how important is health from 1 to 10? 10, 11, right? So the question is, 90% of the time, 90% of the people actively lead unhealthy lives. We know for a fact that being healthy is the most important thing in your life. The proof is in the pudding. God forbid your life is threatened or your health is threatened, you'll do anything. There's nothing in the world you won't do to regain your health. So it's a fact. It's not just theory. It's reality. Your core truth that being healthy is the most important thing in your life. There's nothing in the world that will stop you from regaining your health. You'll go bankrupt. You'll undergo painful procedures. You'll do anything. You'll turn over heaven and earth to regain your health. So how is it that people are so inconsistent? And the answer is because it's abstract. Yes, of course, subconsciously, deep down, I know, I'm aware, I know that being healthy is important. But what impact does it have on my life? Zero. What connection do I make? No connection. Yes, I know being healthy is important. What does it have to do with me today? When, when it will emerge, when it will surface, when the issue will surface, when the doctor tells me there's a problem, okay, then I'll wake up. But until then, I'm in a deep sleep, I'm in denial. There's no, there's no reality, there's no connection. That's the idea of a crown. A crown is like something subconscious. It's deep down, it's hidden, it's buried, it's submerged, it's buried so deep that you'll never find it, you'll never discover it. It has no impact on you. So of course everything in this world has a divine spark, everything in this world, otherwise it couldn't even come into existence. But the divine spark in the kalipa, in the shell, is so hidden, so buried, so submerged, that it has no effect on, on, the, on the clipper. So the clipper is not aware of it. So there's no sense of godliness. There's no sense of refinement. There's no sense of selflessness. There's no sense of transcendence. All there is is I. There's a healthy sense of I, of rigidity, of ego, of I. So the divine spark is like a crown. It's above. Which is why we find the concept of that in the clipper, in the shell, we find the concept of a leaven. We know that the 11 uh, ingredients of the incense that was offered in the temple every day, twice a day, in the morning and the evening. So the incense was made up of 11, because the incense was the antidote to the klippa, the shell. So in holiness, we have 10. We have a minion. God creates the world with 10 svirot. The divine is 10. Holiness is 10. Kalipa, you have 11. Why 11? Because klippa derives its sustenance, 11, 
means that it's, it's transcendent, something that's beyond the natural order, the conscious order. Ten is the, your conscious self, your personality, your character. But Kalipa derives its divine sustenance, its root, its source, its nourishment, it derives from the eleventh level, from the transcendent level. It doesn't perceive, it doesn't penetrate, it doesn't sense, it doesn't appreciate, it doesn't feel godliness. It's totally hidden and concealed. And that's why it's Kalipa. On the overt level, on the conscious level, all you sense is rigidity, I, ego, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-absorption. Of course, within ego itself, you have many different levels. You have pure evil, absolute evil, absolute ego, and then you have ego that also thinks of someone else. Those are the different variations and gradations within the shell, within the shell itself. Pure, absolute evil, and then even within that, you have three different levels. And then you have the Klippat Noga, the illuminated shell, the see-through shell that something of the inside does get through, which explains the Jewish nature for towards kindness, which comes natural. Not something we have to learn or not through education. It's just natural, inherent, and born. The Jew by nature is just naturally kind and um, Jews are disproportionately represented in all the charities in America, whether it's save the whales or save the eels or save somewhere. Because it's just the nature. It's just the nature of the Jew to be kind and generous and liberal. And But all of this is an expression of klipa, an expression of ego, of I. And helping charity? Yes, yes. It's just our nature. So that's why he refers to klipa as the shell, as the, as the crowns. Because they receive the divine sustenance, the nourishment they receive is like a crown. It's above, it's transcendent, it doesn't penetrate. On a conscious level, there's zero perception of its root, of its source, of its divine root and source. So it's totally oblivious of anything divine. You can go through your entire life and even denying that there is a God. Denying that there is a God. Your very sustenance is nothing other than godliness. Your very essence is a godly energy, and yet you go through your life defying, denying, oblivious, indifferent to godliness, to anything inner. And your whole entire life consists of external. Indulgence, money, power, fame, external. Body, physical, material. Totally oblivious to anything inward, to anything spiritual, to anything godly, divine. Because godliness is concealed. God created the world in such a way that it's like a crown. It's transcendent. It's above. It's over our heads. We don't feel. We don't perceive. We don't sense. And therefore, they're like crowns, like independent kingdoms, fiefdoms, no connection. There's no, there's no interrelationship. There's no interconnection. It's, it's, it's to an extreme. Love to an extreme, even if it's inappropriate and wrong. There's a time for love and there's a time for being strong. It's strength also to an extreme. Not, and therefore even at time when it's not appropriate when predominantly there should be love instead it's always strength and each one is an independent kingdom there's no flexibility there's no interrelationship there's no interconnection and now he's going to break it down the ten faculties and powers of the soul just like he did with the divine soul these ten faculties are seven evil midot Seven emotional traits, e.g. lust, the equivalent in Klippa of the Mida of Chesed, kindness, 
Anger, which expresses the mita of Gavura, severity, boastfulness, the equivalent of Tiferet, beauty, and so forth. Everything has a balance, just like you have love, you have a love for God, a love for godliness, a love for spirituality, a love for refinement, for uplifting. You also have a love for materialism, the opposite of, of holiness. Just like you have strength and energy and vitality and holiness, so too you have anger, fiery anger. Instead of a fiery sense of awe, and you have a fiery anger, temper. And so too you have boastfulness, a person who's constantly boasting about himself, constantly promoting himself, the opposite of beauty, the holiness, the holy attribute of beauty. Like being proud and seeing the beauty of godliness, seeing the infinite greatness of godliness, seeing the intricacy and the complexity and the beauty how God created the world and appreciating the infinite complexity of God and the infinite and seeing the beauty of it all and just gazing at the beauty of godliness. Instead, you express it's all about I, boasting about yourself and constantly promoting yourself. So you have different attributes. You have people who are primarily kind and loving, but in, indiscriminately. Loving all the wrong places, all the wrong things in the wrong places. And you have people who have uh, anger issues, temper issues. So the, the, these are the different characteristic traits, emotional characteristic traits and personality traits of the animal soul. Which stem from the four evil elements mentioned above in chapter one. Spiritual entities have their elements as physical objects do. In this case, evil elements, since this is a soul of Klipa. And this we learned in great detail in chapter one. Each element, basically everything in this world, is made up of the four basic elements gas, air, and energy, fire, and earth, and liquid. And so, too, the spiritual soul is also made up of these four spiritual elements. And its expressions, as he explained earlier, arrogance and pride and anger come from fire, fiery personality, the type A. And then you have uh, the sensualist who indulges, who enjoys the central experience, all central experiences. That comes from water, which uh, nourishes and sustains all, you know, the delightful uh, produce yields, produce and fruits and garden. And then you have um, wind, you know, which represents the tendency to just speak and, you know, those windbags of society. And then you have the uh, earth is the lethargic. Those who suffer from, or lethargic, or like lazy and depressed and heavy and Everything is so difficult and are easily, you know, self-critical and everything becomes very, very, very difficult to change and to, there's no energy. It's like a lifelessness. So all of these are expressions, seven emotional attributes that express the different aspects and the different of these, uh, the, uh, of these four different elements. And the intellect cycle which gives birth to these seven evil midot which is subdivided into three, for instance, Chachma, Bina, and Dat, the source of the Mido. The intellectual faculties are described as the source of the evil Mido, for the Mido are commensurate with the quality of one's intellect.
if you pay close attention, since he's referring to the previous chapters, if we look at chapter 3, when he describes the divine soul, the godly soul, you can take a look at the beginning of chapter 3. He also describes the ten faculties of the divine soul. But how does he start? Page 64. If you look at page 64, you can see an obvious difference between what's the sequence, how he breaks down the two categories. Chapter 3, which comes first in chapter 3? First, start with three and then ah, first he starts with the intellect, intellectual faculties, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, and then he goes to the emotions. Here it says the opposite. First he starts with the emotions, and then he goes to the intellect. And also, another difference, there he says, he calls the three, the three mothers that give birth to the emotions. The emotions are the children, the offspring of the intellect. It's not what he says here. He says here that the intellect is the source of the emotions, emotional characteristics, because the, the emotional attributes, characteristics, are commensurate to the quality of one's intellect. He doesn't quite call them children or offspring. He doesn't call the three faculties the mother or this. And the explanation is because there's a big difference between the godly soul and the animal soul. The natural soul. The natural soul is primarily emotion. It's driven by emotions. Human beings are naturally driven by emotions. Pleasure-seeking, fun-seeking, thrill-seeking, indulgence, instant gratification. That's the engine, that's the ultimate motivation for everything, everything that we do, for the natural soul. Ego, self, how can I satisfy myself? Self-centeredness, self-absorption. That's natural. That comes natural. The intellect is secondary. The intellect, how do I fulfill my emotions? How do I fill, fulfill my desire? I need an intellect. You have to be smart. You want to get ahead in life. You want certain things in life. You have to use your brains. How am I going to get there? You want fame? There's a roadmap. You have to do something. So, so the, the, the intellect just guides, guides my emotions. It doesn't give birth to the emotions. The emotions precede the intellect. The emotions are natural. The emotions are more powerful than the intellect. The drive and the motivation, the passion and the connection that you have to materialism doesn't come as a result of contemplation, of meditation. I have to meditate on the, on the value of, of, of materialistic indulgence. It comes natural. doesn't need any meditation. doesn't need any contemplation. doesn't need any effort. But I need my intellect to guide me. How do I fulfill my emotion? How do I fulfill my indulgence? How do I get what I want? To get what you want. You have to use your brains. You have to have a program, you have to be educated, you, have, you want to make money, you have to do business, you want to have fame, you want to indulge, first you have to make it, you have to be successful, you want power. So the mind just guides your emotions. With the divine soul, it's the exact opposite. The seed of power in the divine soul is not the emotions, it's the brain, it's the mind. Because in order to connect with the divine, it's only through awareness 
It's only through focus, concentration, meditation, reflection, study. It doesn't come natural. It doesn't come easy. It's effort. Education, hard work. And when you do develop, when you fully develop that intellect, starting with the concept and then analyzing that concept and truly grasping the concept and then digesting the concept and internalizing the concept, then you give birth, the intellect, the divine intellect gives birth to the divine emotions. A passion and a love to God, a yearning to God, a feeling of ecstasy, a hunger, pleasure. So the, the emotions are the offspring of the intellect. The intellect are, are the true mothers of the, of the emotion. So first comes the intellect and then comes the emotion. With the animal soul, the natural soul is the opposite. First comes the emotions. And the emotions are natural. Then comes the intellect. The intellect guides the emotions. As I'll explain now, because depending on the intellect, that's how you're going to channel your emotions. A child who has a childish understanding will only desire childish stuff. Because that's all he can comprehend. He wants, of course, he wants to indulge, he wants to have fun, and he wants to have a thrill, and he wants to enjoy himself, and he wants to instant gratification. But for the childish mind, he can only grasp childish things. And that's what he desires for. That's how he directs and focuses his channels, his emotions. A person grows up, then you don't want childish toys, you want adult toys. So then your mind, your, your, channel, your mind guides you how to channel your emotions. That you desire, I don't want toys, I want, I want real things. In order to get that, you have to have money. You want to get what you want in America, you have to have a lot of money. Okay, so your mind guides you. Okay, listen, you want, this is your goal in life. You want to have this and that and that. This is what you have to do. So the mind channels and guides your emotions doesn't create it, but it, it just channels it. That's why it's secondary. What's primary is the emotion. And the emotion is much more powerful than the intellect. It's not limited to the intellect. The divine soul, the emotions are based on the intellect and therefore also commensurate to the intellect. The deeper your understanding, the deeper your focus, the deeper your concentration... The deeper your connection, the deeper your emotion. With the animal soul, it has nothing to do with the intellect. It's like an animalistic drive, a natural drive, a powerful drive, an overwhelming drive. The ego is powerful. The intellect just guides and channels the direction. A child desires and loves that he expresses his mita of kesed towards petty things of little value, for his intellect is too immature and deficient to appreciate more valuable things. Similarly, with regard to the Mida of Devorah, he is angered and vexed by trivial things. And likewise, with regard to boastfulness, which expresses the Mida of Seferet and other Mida. This correlation between Mida and intellect indicates that the intellect affects the nature and expression of Mida. And for this reason, the three intellectual faculties are said to be the source of the seven Mido. Now these ten unclean categories, when a person thinks, thoughts originating from them, e.g. when he thinks of ways of obtaining something he desires, 
or speaks words originating from them, or does an act which serves or expresses them, then the thought in his brain, the words in his mouth, and the power of action in his hands and other organs are called impure garments, for these ten unclean categories. So just like you explained in the previous, in the chapter 4, that you have the ten faculties of the soul, then you have the three expressions, how the soul expresses itself and activates these faculties through thought, speech, and action. So too you have the thought, speech, and action of the natural soul. When a person thinks or speaks or acts, acts out these desires and these emotions, then he becomes a vessel or a vehicle at that moment, his hands and his thought and his speech become a vessel and a vehicle to these impure garments. And they become impure. And just like he explained in chapter 4, that the garments, in a certain sense, are greater, greater than the actual faculties. They elevate the soul. When the soul is activated through these garments and the soul expresses itself through these garments, the soul is elevated through the mitzvah, through the thought, speech, holy thought and holy speech and holy action of the mitzvah. The soul is elevated to the highest level. So too, when a Jew thinks or speaks or acts, expressing and activating his faculties of his natural soul, his animal soul, he reaches a level of impurity that's greater than the natural state of impurity of the soul itself. Because that's the power of action, thought, speech, and action. That's the power of our actions and our activities. When we actually express our emotions, our natural emotions, and express our natural uh, desires in actual thought, speech, and action, it actually brings down, draws down on the person a much greater level of impurity than the soul in itself. The soul in its own is already impure, just by its very being and its faculties, because it's in mind and it's heart and it is engaged in, in ungodly things. So it's already impure. But when the soul actually activates these faculties and actually thinks, speaks, and acts, all these, all these um, expressing himself then the soul draws down a much greater level of impurity. That's why idle talk is frowned upon. Right, one of the reasons, yes. Which clothe themselves in these garments during the act, speech, or thought. These garments of the animal soul comprise all the deeds that are done under the sun, all mundane actions, which are all vanity and, and affliction of the spirit, as the Zohar, Pashat, the Shalaf interprets this, a ruination of the spirit of holiness. So here he's saying, we're not talking about sinful actions or sinful thoughts or sinful speech. That goes without saying. A person who acts sinfully, a person who speaks sinfully, he speaks lies, he speaks slander, a person who thinks uh, negative thoughts, that goes without saying that you are, those thoughts and speech and action are impure and you're drawing down impurity into, on, on those organs, on yourself. Here we're talking about a person who's going about his life, his daily life. He's not doing anything wrong or anything sinful. He's just going about his daily business. But if you, a person indulges, a person is eating and he's indulging. It's pleasurable. And he's just indulging, indulging his senses. 
he, he's eating glatt kosher. It has a triple hechsher. It's the most kosher piece of, piece of meat or food you can find. But the person is eating in order to indulge his animal soul. He just has a passionate desire to indulge in this delicious, juicy... <laughs> you fill in the blank. Everyone's different. <laughs> at that moment, you're not, not only aren't you doing anything godly or holy, at that moment you're actually expressing and activating, you're bringing down something. It's, it's an impure act. Because you're indulging, you're expressing your animal soul. You're expressing your impure soul. Your natural soul. Your animal soul. You're expressing your animal desires. Egotistical desires. Pleasure, pleasurable desires. External desires. And therefore, you're activating and drawing down a level of impurity. Onto yourself. So he says that's all the thoughts and all the speech and all the action that a person indulges, or as we go about our daily life, as the Zohar says, that anything under the sun, anything not connected with godliness, with holiness, is vanity, an affliction of the spirit. It's not wholesome, it's external, it's superficial, it's impure, and it's a ruination of the spirit. To the Holy Spirit, it's a ruination of the spirit. It's a burden on the soul. It's like taints, taints the soul. The soul who's sensitive can sense this level of impurity, the spirit of impurity that's enveloping you as you go about expressing your natural soul, your animal soul, your natural self as you go about your daily life. And then he takes it even a step further. Similarly, all words and all thoughts that are not directed to God, to His will, and to His and His service are all garments for the animals. So here he's taking it even a step further. Not only if a person thinks or speaks or acts, does something sinful, are you impure at that moment? But even if you just go about your daily life, going about going about our daily life and just living our lives. Indulging in kosher activity, but we're doing it just indulging ourselves. Not only then do you draw down a level of impurity, but even if you have no godly thought, but you also have you're not indulging. A person, you're hungry and you're eating because I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I have to nourish myself. I have no energy. I have no strength. I sit down, and I'm eating a wholesome meal. I'm dieting. I'm disciplined. I'm eating a wholesome meal. So I'm not indulging. I'm eating. I'm just eating just, just to live, to sustain myself. But there is a, a lack of any godly thought. There's an absence of any god. I'm not thinking about God. A person, any activity in life that does not include a divine thought is already connected with impurity. Because, as it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, everything a Jew does has to be L'Shem Shemayim. Whatever we do, we have to do it for the sake of heaven. Whatever we do, we have to insert, a Jew has to inject and insert a divine thought. I am eating, I'm not just eating. 
Because I have to survive. So I have to eat. And I have to eat healthy. And I need energy. And I need strength. That's not why I eat. Why? Of course I'm eating to be healthy. But why do I need to be healthy? To serve Hashem. In order to be able to serve God. You have to be healthy. A Jew has to be healthy. That's why I'm eating. That's why I'm eating to be healthy. Why am I exercising? In order to serve God. A Jew's life has a theme. A book can have thousands of episodes and details and hundreds of characters, but there's one theme that connects the whole book. A Jew's life has a theme. As we go about our daily life with hundreds of different activities, from the orange juice you drink in the morning, from the paper you read, and from going about the business and running here and running there, your whole life, you take your whole day, it's like hundreds of different details. But there's a theme. Whatever a Jew does, there's one thing. Whatever I do, it's the Shem Shemayim. I earn money for the sake of heaven in order to be able to, do, to accomplish my mission in life in order to live as a Jew. I need money. To buy kosher. To give my children a Jewish education. To give tzedakah. I eat to be healthy so I can serve God. I go to sleep also. I go to sleep in order to be rested, in order to be healthy so my mind is clear so I can serve God. Everything a Jew does Ultimately, there is a divine intent. Otherwise, if there's no divine intent, then it's impure. In other words, there's no neutral. There's no such thing as neutral. Either it's godly, or it's the opposite of godliness. Either it's pure, and if it's not pure, it's automatically impure. I have no negative thought. I'm not even indulging. I'm eating something that, that doesn't even taste good. I'm just eating it because it's healthy. I'm just, I'm just doing it just for the sake of being healthy. There's no divine intent. I'm not injecting anything deeper. If God is not part of the picture, it's automatically impure. It's automatically a distortion. It's automatically superficial. And off. Something is off. So this is a revolutionary concept of the whole idea of good and evil. It's not that I do something bad or I've done something evil. It's being itself is already evil. It's a distortion. Being, I, without any sense of godliness, without any sense of something higher, that everything in this world is just here as a means to an end. Everything is being created each and every moment by the divine energy. And therefore, our entire existence has only one theme and one purpose. And one, one, and you only connect to reality when you're in touch with that reality. What's reality? Reality is the inner, the inner, the divine spark, the purpose, the inner energy, the godly, godly spark. And that everything in my life, there's not a single aspect of my life that's not connected with that single thing, which is to express godliness. How? Through Torah, through mitzvah, through going about my daily life, but constantly having in mind whatever I do, I'm doing for the sake of heaven, I'm doing for the sake of God. I'm in a mission, God's ambassador. I'm here to spiritualize the world, to make this world a godly place. Everything that I do is part of, my, part, of my, part of my mission as a Jew. There's not a single aspect of my life that's not connected, that's not part of my, part of, part of that mission. 
So, as long as you remember that and inject that thought into everything that we do, that's the theme to everything that we do, then it's whole. But the moment you forget and life is, becomes an independent entity on its own, ego, being, I, serving no higher purpose, just I am because I am. I am. Self-preservation. Continue life, continue myself. No higher purpose, no point. As an end in itself. That alone is already impurity. That alone is already a distortion. That alone is already the antithesis and the opposite of God. So even if a person just goes about his daily life, is doing nothing wrong, not even indulging, paragon of virtue, self-discipline, if there's no thought of godliness and there's no higher purpose, there's no higher intent, that alone is already a distortion. That alone is already impure. That's a purely Jewish concept. Which is why it's very hard to translate these concepts into foreign language because these concepts don't exist in any language in any culture. The idea that being itself is already, is already, a, is already wrong. It's already a lie is a cover-up, is a shell, is a distortion, is a disconnect from reality. Why do we feel guilty all the time? But we were created that way. Yes, but we have a choice to connect everything that we do with Hashem. That's the choice. That's the mission of a Jew. To go about your daily life. We don't study Torah all day. We don't do mitzvah all day. There's only one day a week at Shabbos, six days a week you work. But it's our choice and our mission is to inject an awareness and a sense of godliness in everything that we do. I go about my business, but if I'm thinking and I have a mind and I'm doing my business and I'm earning a living and I'm successful in my career, but what's it all about? It's all about godliness. So I should have the money and I should have the means to be able to do what I need to do, to give tzedakah and to lead a Jewish life, to have the influence in the world that I have to have. And I eat to be healthy. Why, why do I have to be healthy? In order to serve God. It's a beautiful story with the fourth Lubavitcher Rebbe and uh, his son, who was later to be the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was having a whole discussion with his older brother. They were little children. He was having a difficult time understanding what the Alter Rebbe writes in the first chapter of Tanya, that the Jewish soul is different than the non-Jewish soul. That what makes us Jewish is because we have a Jewish soul. And he, couldn't, he, was, he was a little child, like three years old, and he couldn't understand the difference. just couldn't get it into his head. What do you mean? You have two human beings. What do you mean this is a Jew and a non-Jew? And what's the difference between them? And they were having a whole discussion, and their, their, their older sister, the Oraleer, went over to their, to their father. He was sitting in the, in the uh, garden studying, and she, she was telling him that they were having an excited conversation, and how the older brother was trying to explain to the younger brother what's the difference between the Jewish soul and the non-Jewish soul. So the Rebbe Marash says, call them over. So they called over the, the little boys. And then he summoned Bensian. Bensian was the uh, Masharis. He was the worker. He worked in the house, you know, took care of everything. And he says, Bensian, how are you? He says, Baruch Hashem, thank God. He says, did he eat today, this morning? He says, yes. Did he eat well? He says, I'm full. Thank God. He says, why did he eat? I ate, so I should be healthy. Why do you have to be healthy? So I should serve God. 
And then as he said it, he sighed. Because he realized he's not serving God, it's not genuine. You know, that he's saying he's eating to serve God, but is that for real? And he sighed. Anyway, he dismissed him. Then he called Ivan. Ivan was the guy who worked also. He was a wagon driver and he worked. He, even spoke, he spoke Yiddish because he was like the Shabbos guy and he hung around the Jews. He even spoke a good Yiddish. Then we asked him, Ivan, how are you? He says, good. He said, thank God. He says, good. So did he eat today? He says, yes. Did he eat well? Oh, very well. He <laughs> says, why did he eat? He says, I should be strong and healthy. He says, and why is it important for you to be healthy and to be strong? He says, at the end of the day, I can have a good drink. I go to the bar, I can have a good drink. And he smiled. Because he was picturing the drink that he's going to have at the end of the, that day. And he dismissed it. And he explained to his little child, he says, see the difference? And Sia in the Jew is eating. He's going about his daily life. But why is he eating? Ultimately, what's the motivation? What's the purpose? What's he thinking about? Deep down, what's it all about? So he should be able to serve God. He's a soldier. He's a servant. He's a soldier. He's... God's ambassador, he has to be healthy, he has to take care of himself, he has to eat well. But what's it about? It's about that he should serve God, to connect with God. And he's sighing at the end. He's sighing because he feels it's not genuine. Ivan, what's his motivation? Pleasure. Indulgence. Pleasure. That's the motivation. That's the end in itself. What's life all about? Pleasure. Everyone has a different definition for pleasure. For ego, for I. One person's pleasure is material indulgence, drinking. Another person's pleasure is other types of indulgence. Another person's pleasure is acquiring money. Another person's indulgence is fame, to leave a mark in this world. Everyone has their definition of, but ultimately, what's the motivation? It's ego, it's I. I want to make a name for myself. I want to be somebody. That's the motivation behind everything that I do. So it's all about I, it's ego. God has nothing to do with it. Even the religious person, God is compartmentalized. Okay, he's a part of my life, but not my life. Not me, myself, and I, my ego. That's the ultimately primary drive for everything that I do. But for a Jew, that's the choice that we have. Of course, God created us with an ego, with a natural soul. With a, but that's the choice that we have. We can inject everything that we do. We should inject that sense of Shem Shemayim, Shem Shemayim. Baruch Hashem, that's why I drew whatever you do. How am I doing? Baruch Hashem, thank God. God is part of everything. Because everything that I do is ultimately for the sake of Hashem, to connect with Hashem. And that's what makes it holy. Then we transform everything that we do, we transform into something holy. When God is absent, and that theme, and that goal, and that connection is gone, then those actions are impure, considered impure actions, impure thoughts, impure speech. Because God has nothing to do with it. So if you're enjoying the food, then it's, you're not eating for the sake of heaven? No. If you, you make a, you make a bracha before you eat. So okay. you make a blessing. And hopefully you're not just saying the blessing, hopefully you understand what you're saying. So you're already injecting God into the picture. And you realize that the food... What's nourishing you? 
What's nourishing you is the divine spark inside the food that's nourishing. And, and therefore you're like, when you take that energy, you're going to take that energy and you're going to utilize that energy to be able to study, to be able to learn, to be able to daven, to be able to do mitzvot, and to fulfill your mission. So you're injecting God into, into, into everything that you do. You're not just indulging, you're not just eating whatever you want. Certain things are kosher, certain things are not kosher. So you already have a discipline. And you're making a blessing. And hopefully you're aware of what you're blessing. And you're trying to inject and bring God into the picture before the eating and after the eating. And um, so when, when you have a theme in your life, you have a, a unifying theme, a goal for everything that you do, that's how you transform everything into holiness. But it's okay if he enjoys it. Yeah, this is, I mean, this, this, a person should eat healthy. The motivation of eating should be a person has to have a discipline. The point of eating should be healthy. Healthy doesn't, is not always tasty. Fat-free, taste-free. <laughs> But if the purpose of eating is to be healthy, then you eat even if it's not tastiest things. Obviously, if a person is just going to eat a life of junk food, it's very questionable if his motivations is for the sake of God. Because, you know, if your purpose is for a higher purpose, to be healthy, that's the reason you eat, in order to have strength, in order to be able to serve God. You're not going to be able to do that you know, the only reason to really indulge in, in, in junk food is because, of course, the junkier it is, the tastier it is. That's not, if you eat a kosher butcher and here's a piece of meat that's $5 a pound and there's $10 a pound, you're going to get the same nourishment from $5 a pound. So it, it, are you buying the $10 because of your ego? Is that... Not necessarily. nothing to not do with God. I not mean, necessarily. Uh, the, choicer, the choicer piece of meat is probably... Uh, fresher, it's probably a better cut better cut no, there's, there's nothing wrong as a matter of fact, on Shabbat, a Jew has to, you have to have pleasure in the food, you have to find pleasure in the food on Shabbat, that's how you fulfill the mitzvah of celebrating Shabbos is by eating delicious food tasty food delicious food, it has to give you pleasure, the food has to give you pleasure um, but the, the it's a means to an end for a Jew Materialism is always a means to an end. It's never an end in itself. It's a means to an end. Anything material is a means to an end. Because ultimately, the pleasure that food will give you and the pleasure that anything material can give you, any pleasure, whether it's sexual pleasure, whether it's food, we're just using the category as if food is just a category for any material pleasure. It's never an end in itself because it can never really satisfy. It will never satisfy. The more you indulge, the hungrier you get. The more you want to indulge. And then you have to keep on indulging. It's a never-ending, it's, it's almost a cruel trip because it never, you're never really satisfied. That's not what you're looking for. That's not what's going to give you satisfaction. The only thing ultimately can give you satisfaction is something internal. When you accomplish something spiritually, that gives you satisfaction, ultimately. And that lingers, that stays. Um, the food... And anything material is only at best a means to an end. 
So if it's a means to an end, it, it could be very powerful. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with power. There's nothing wrong with all these things. But as long as it doesn't define you. And when you're, beyond, when you're above the food, when you don't allow the food to define you, then you can define the food. Then it can become a meaningful, elevating, wholesome experience. But when you are defined by the food and you're imprisoned by the food and you're trapped by the food, you can't, you can't release or redeem the food. The food is, you know, if you're defined by it, only if you're above the food, then, then you can elevate it. So if a person who's not defined by money, a person who's not defined by materialism, could use material, it's a powerful tool. It's, the shell is very beneficial. If the shell is in the proper perspective, the shell is a very means to an end. It's a very powerful. The fruit can't live without the shell. The fruit needs the shell in order for the fruit to nourish and to, to grow. So the shell is very powerful. Materialism is very powerful. The body, the container, the material is a very powerful thing. There's nothing wrong with uh, living in a big house. And on the contrary, it expands your mind. Wealth is a very powerful tool. It expands your mind. It opens you up. But as long as it's a means to an end. If that's not how you define yourself then you can do tremendous things with it. And it's very beneficial and very wholesome. Eating can be very wholesome. And nurturing and nourishing. Spiritual, not just material. But the moment you become trapped by the food and you become defined by the food and your whole life is defined by indulgence and external indulgence, then, then you know, you'll never, it'll, never, it'll never satisfy you. And that's why a Jew has a discipline. You know, you don't... Certain, most foods are actually sworn off. Can't touch. And then there's a discipline how you eat. The blessing, the way you eat, how you eat. So as long as you don't define yourself by food and you have that higher purpose and that higher connection, everything that you do is for the sake of Hashem, then it's a means to an end as long as you inject that, that everything materialistic is just a means to an end, and your ultimate end is connecting with Hashem, then, then, it's a very, then you can elevate the fruit. And then that experience becomes a holy experience. So that's up to us. That's our freedom of choice. That's the choice that we have. That's the balance that we have. God gave us a choice. Balance. We can get lost in the material. We can drown the material. We can get lost. Or we can elevate it. It becomes an opportunity. Every time a Jew drinks a glass of water, it becomes an opportunity. You make a blessing. You connect it. You make it holy. You make it into a holy experience. Not just, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty and I'm drinking. No. It's a holy activity. It's a godly activity. This is the meaning of the term shifra, achra, literally the other side, meaning not the side of holiness. Thus, whatever does not belong to the realm of holiness is sitra, So this is a revolutionary concept. There's no neutral. Automatically, the moment something is not holy, automatically it's the opposite side, it's impure. It's from the shell. There's no in-between. So it's not what is, what is holiness. What is the, the opposite of holiness is not, I've done something evil, I've done something horrible, I've done something terrible. Being itself is already unholy. If God is not part of the picture, if something is independent, has an end in itself... It's already a distortion. It's already a lie. Nothing in this world is independent. Nothing in the world is an end in itself. Everything in the world is being created each and every moment for one purpose and one purpose only. For Hashem. There's nothing else. 
And unless you inject that reality and that truth into all of your activities, then that activity automatically becomes a lie, a distortion, an impure activity, impure act, impure thought, impure speech. And it, 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 it brings down the level of impurity into your body, to your organs, which is greater than the natural impurity that we have from our natural soul and from our animal soul. It's the expressions, this, the, the, the actions, the thought, the speech that really create a split, a disconnect that envelops us in a sense of a level of impurity. So what is the definition of holiness? In order to understand what is impure, since we said anything that's not pure, anything that's not holy is automatically impure, what is the definition of holiness? But I think we'll stop there. Be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.